You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Good morning, church. As James mentioned, this is Reformation Sunday, the last Sunday in October. And uh, if, if it's been a while since you took a world history class and you need to re- refresh your course on what the Reformation was all about... Basically, it was, it was the most important movement within Christianity to take place since the time of Christ and the Apostles. 500 years ago, this movement was sweeping through Europe. Uh, the church of the day had become so corrupt and so institutionalized that people were, uh, that, that basically, at least to a large extent, the gospel had been lost. And during the Reformation, it was rediscovered, and it's summarized in the five solas, or the five alones of the Reformation. Scripture alone, that's our authority, right? Not popes, not councils, not anything else, Scripture alone. Then salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, okay? And then lastly, because it's all of God, then the last alone is this. To God alone be all the glory. So this is the message of the Reformation. And as we look today at God's Word, I want us to focus on one of those alones. And that is that our justification or our salvation is in Christ alone. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans. And today we will be looking at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. And follow along in your Bible or, or on the screen as I read. This is the Word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. We live in a very credential conscious society. If you want to vote next week, you'll need to be able to produce the right credentials. If you expect to be accepted at the U of A, you need the right credentials. If you want to get into a military installation, you have to show the right credentials. I travel a lot internationally, and every time I come to a country, I have to show my visa and my passport. 
And if I don't have those right credentials, I'll be turned away. I mention that because there is a credential required to enter heaven. And that credential is righteousness. Righteousness is what you need to enter heaven. You see, judgment day is coming. The Bible says that man is destined to die once, and after that, the judgment. And in Matthew 25, Jesus describes that judgment. He speaks of the unbelievers, and he, as he speaks of them, he says, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You see then that righteousness spells the difference between enjoying God and the blessings of heaven forever and suffering punishment of separation from God for eternity in hell. And the Bible goes on to explain that the kind of righteousness that is required is a perfect righteousness, an absolutely perfect righteousness. There's nothing relative about this righteousness, okay? That's so important to realize because we are so used to comparing ourselves with other people. <laughs> the Bible says about the, these so-called apostles, when they compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. And sometimes we too are very unwise. We can compare ourselves with, some, with other people and I can always find people that make me feel good about myself. Well, I have it together more than that person. Or I might compare myself with another person who makes me feel real inferior. It's like, whoa, I've got a long way, way to go. But you see, the Bible gives us the standard of Jesus Christ. He is the only one you need to compare yourself to. You need to be as perfect and righteous as Jesus Christ in order to enter heaven. And that's what God requires. Perfection. It's not as if He weighs on the scales and puts our good deeds on one side and our bad deeds on the other. And if the bad outweighs the good, we go down. And if the good outweighs the bad, we go up. That's not how it works. What we need is absolute perfection. And you say, well, nobody's perfect. And the Bible says, amen. That's the point. Paul has just spent three chapters almost in the book of Romans explaining what he summarized in verse 23 here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. So you see the problem. You need righteousness to enter heaven, but you have no hope of procuring that righteousness on your own. Isaiah the prophet wrote, All of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. You know, sometimes we think maybe all of our sins are like filthy rags, but all of our righteousnesses must please God a little bit. But that's not what he said. The best that we can do, the best that we can offer is still tainted and dirty and polluted in God's sight. All of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. 
Now, before the time of the Reformation, a key figure in that movement named Martin Luther was a monk in a monastery. He understood this problem. He understood that he needed perfect righteousness, and he wasn't there. And so as a result, he spent very much time, literally hours each day, confessing his sins to a priest, trying to think of of the least little way he may have failed to live up to God's perfect standard. When I first read that story, I guess because I'm a pastor, I put myself in the place of the priest. You know, thinking, oh no, here comes Martin again. This day's shot. And as Luther would get there, he would, again, he'd be there hours, confessing every little thing. And one day, the priest that was hearing his confession got so tired of it, He said, Martin, if you're going to come in here and spend hours confessing every day, go do some sin worth confessing. (laughs) Luther understood what the priest did not. That all his confessions and prayers and good works and pious activities were not enough. To earn the perfect righteousness that God requires. What Luther didn't understand at that time was how he could have that righteousness. And one of the the glories of the study of the Reformation is how he did discover that. He was teaching this very book of Romans at the University of Erfurt in Germany. And he came across, uh, he was in Romans 1, and he was meditating on verse 17 that says in the King James Version, the just shall live by faith. To render it uh, more in contemporary language, what, what it means is the one who is righteous by faith shall live. And it, it dawned on him. It dawned on him, and it wasn't just dawning on him, but it was the Spirit obviously revealing to him that that the righteousness that he needed was not something that he could deserve. He called it an alien righteousness because it had to be a righteousness outside of himself. I know we think of aliens, you know, like science fiction things, but it just means outside of yourself. He also realized... It's a passive righteousness. It's not something that I work for. It's something that I simply receive. That's where Luther recognized the solution to his dilemma, which is also our dilemma. Remember the dilemma, the problem. We need perfect righteousness. We cannot obtain that righteousness. But the solution is that God gives you His own perfect righteousness as a free gift. Our text says that gift is by grace alone. Verse 24 says we are justified by His grace as a gift. And then it goes on to say to be received by faith. There you have your faith alone. And then it goes on to say it's in Christ alone in these words. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. God does all of this uh, through our justification. And I want you to see a definition of justification. If we could flash it up on the screen, please. This is from a Reformation document called the Westminster Larger Catechism. And because it's so old, that's why the English is old, but bear with me as we read it. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which He pardoneth all their sins, accepteth and accounteth their person righteous in His sight not for anything wrought in them, nor done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. That's quite a mouthful. But the basic idea is this, that the only ground or basis for our justification is the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ. The first thing we recognize in this, as we're looking at what Christ did for us, is that Jesus Christ is your sin bearer. He's your sin bearer. The very next verse after the just shall live by faith, Romans 1.18 says this, the wrath of God is being poured out from heaven upon all unrighteousness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Okay, do, you, do you see how graphic that picture is? I, when, when, I, when I think of that picture of the wrath of God being poured out, it, it reminds me of kind of one of those old movies you know, where, the, where the, the city is under siege and there are people up on the wall and the attackers are trying to put their makeshift ladders to scale that wall to get into this, the city. And people are on top of the wall with, with buckets of, of boiling oil that they pour down on the people that are coming up the ladders. That's just the picture that comes to my mind when I think of the wrath of God. The anger of God being poured out from heaven against all unrighteousness and sinfulness of men. Back in the 1960s in this country, there was a movement called the God is Dead movement. And in the God is Dead movement, uh, basically coming out of um, Harvard University, but then spreading throughout the whole country, Harvey Cox, the secular city and all of that. But what they were, were saying was, this ancient concept of God has no place in modern life. God is dead. Uh, there was a bumper sticker around at the time, sort of a reactionary bumper sticker. Not particularly winsome, but, uh, but very true. And it said, God is back, and boy is he mad. Uh, and this is true. The wrath of God. People can claim He's dead. They can claim He's not there. They can fail to acknowledge Him, but He is there. And He has a standard that He requires of us. And if we don't meet that standard, we are under His wrath. 
Not only are we under his wrath, but we're also under his curse. Now, here in America and in the Western world in general, we don't think of curses that much. When you hear of curse, curse you've, maybe you think of a curse word. But when you think of somebody being under a curse, maybe you think it's just kind of a superstitious thing. Uh, but I'll tell you what, in Africa where I live and work, people understand curses. They will do just about anything to, to have a curse removed from them so that they can bear children or whatever the curse may be upon them. And they'll go to the witch doctors and they'll, whatever the witch doctor says, two chickens, a goat, whatever it is, you know, they'll offer that to have this ceremony done so that the curse can be lifted. So when I talk to friends in Africa or people in Africa who don't know the Lord, I'd like to ask them this. What if the curse that you were under came not from, from one of these witch doctors or, sorry, I should use the politically correct name, traditional healers? What if, what if the curse didn't come from them, but if the curse came from an almighty God that the all-powerful God had put his curse upon you. What would you do to get rid of that curse? And they're like, ooh. And I tell them, you know, I got some bad news for you. You are under God's curse. And so am I. And the reason that we're under God's curse is because we failed to obey His Word completely. The Bible says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in this book of the law. If you haven't obeyed God perfectly, you're under His curse. What will you do to remove that curse? But then, of course... I like to give the good news of the gospel. The Bible says, you know, that's why Jesus came. And in Galatians chapter 3, it says that Christ removed the curse of the law from us by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. There's a wonderful story in the book of, of Exodus uh, sorry, actually, during the era of the Exodus, the story is actually from the book of Numbers. But it's when the people rebelled. Nothing new about that. That seems to be the whole story of what was happening in the, in the wilderness. But they rebel against God. And on this particular occasion, God sent snakes, fiery serpents. And these, these venomous snakes would bite people and they'd die. And as Moses cried out to God for mercy for the people, God commanded Moses, you make a serpent out of bronze. Put it on a pole and put it up in the congregation. And whoever gets bitten by one of these snakes can look at that serpent on the pole and they'll be healed. Jesus referred to that very event when he was talking to Nicodemus. A man who came to him by night. He said this in John chapter 3. As Moses 
lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him might have everlasting life. Now it's quite an arresting thought, isn't it? That the perfect, spotless Son of God would be represented as a serpent. You, you think of a serpent in the Bible and you immediately think of the Garden of Eden and, and how, how Satan through the serpent tempted Eve and Adam and how they sinned against God. Why then would the Bible present Jesus Christ under the symbol as a serpent? I'm glad you asked because I'm about to tell you why. The reason is this, because on the cross, Jesus Christ was bearing our sin. He was, he was actually uh, taking his own, in his own body, our sin. He himself, uh, Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The reason that he is presented as a serpent is because when he was bearing our sin, he was bearing the curse of God. And thus, he is portrayed as this cursed serpent. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. Now, the term that's used in, in the Scripture here that we read is propitiation. And I know that's not a term that we use every day, but it's a really good solid biblical term and it's one that it's worthwhile taking a little time to understand. Propitiation simply means that which satisfies the wrath of God. The anger of God is poured out on us Christ's propitiation, His sacrifice, is what satisfies God's wrath. It's because of what Christ did, not only that the curse is lifted, but that His anger against us is no longer there. It was on the cross. Just as Jesus bore, the sin, bore our sin and bore the curse on the cross, he also satisfied God's wrath on the cross. You'll probably remember the story that when Jesus was crucified from 12 noon until 3 p.m., darkness came over the face of the earth. It was just, just like it was night. And, and people must have wondered what in the world is going on. But you see... What was happening was God the Father was turning His face away from His own Son, the one with whom He had enjoyed perfect communion since before the world began, from eternity in fact. Now as our sin bearer, God who, whose eyes are too holy to look upon iniquity, turns his face from his son. And that's what Jesus was, 
was talking about when he cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Toward the end of those three hours, just before he died, Jesus uttered the words, It is finished. And when he said those words in Greek, one word to telestai, but when he said it in when he said it is finished, what he was saying is that it's done. It's paid in full. God's wrath is fully satisfied. His justice, the demands of his justice have been fully met. The debt has been fully paid. There's nothing else to do. Now, all Christians recognize, all true Christians at least, recognize that Jesus Christ is their sin bearer. But many do not realize that Jesus Christ is also their righteousness giver. Their righteousness giver. And I mention this because I didn't recognize it for a long time. That Jesus Christ was my righteousness giver. When I was in Sunday school as a kid, I, I learned this definition of justification. Justification means that God treats me just as if I had never sinned. Okay? Now, there's truth to that, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. Let me explain. This, this whole idea of justification is really has to do with the idea of accounting. Okay? Sin in the Bible is often pictured as a debt. You know, for, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's talking about our sins, right? Debt. We owe this tremendous debt to God that we could never pay. Now, if we see Jesus only as our sin bearer, if we see justification only as forgiveness, that is, wiping out our debt, that brings us back to a zero balance. But what we need is not a zero balance. We need the perfect righteousness of Christ. Right? So really what justification is, is not simply wiping out our debt, it's giving us the righteousness of Christ. And so if I could update the Sunday school definition of justification. Could I say justification means that God treats us just as if we had always been as perfect as Jesus himself. That's the idea. Too many Christians think that yeah, Jesus died for my sin, but now it's up to me. No. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is your righteousness giver. On New Year's Day of 1937, a great Bible teacher by the name of J. Gresham Machen died. He met his maker. My wife would say he would have lived longer if he had married. He was only in his 50s. You know. <clears throat> Shortly before his death, 
Machen dictated a telegram to his friend and colleague, Professor John Murray. And the words of the telegram were short and sweet. They said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. That's one theologian speaking to another. <laughs> but, but theologians often differentiate between what's called the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ is what Jesus suffered on the cross, right? All his sufferings, everything that was poured out upon him. But you know, Jesus didn't just come to the world, die, and go back to heaven. He lived 33 years before that. And during those 33 years, he never sinned. Not in the slightest way. I remember studying the book of James and realizing that James was written by Jesus' younger half-brother. And I thought, I felt sorry for James, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I felt sorry for James growing up where, where, where his, his mom says, uh, why can't you be like your brother Jesus? <laughs> you know? His active obedience was that he perfectly kept all of the demands of God's law. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. This is what Machen was talking about when he said, I have no hope apart from the active obedience of Christ. The question then is, how is it that we receive this righteousness? And we've already mentioned that, we, that it is a gift that's received by grace through faith alone. But I want to focus on the term in the catechism, uh, again, that, that accounting term that says, by God imputed to them. This righteousness is imputed to us by God. Imputation, again, is an old-fashioned word. But it's an important word. It, it means either crediting to someone's account or charging against someone's account, uh, depending on the context. And what, what I want you to see here as our final point is that justification involves the great exchange. Your sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. If you could take our debt analogy again, we have, we have this tremendous debt of sin in forgiveness. Christ wipes out the debt. But in justification, God imputes to our account, credits to our account, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible means when it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He takes our sins. He gives us his righteousness. You'll never find a better deal than that one. Saul of Tarsus. Like many people of his day and age, thought that he could please God by his own good works. 
He's the one who later became the Apostle Paul, by the way, in case you're wondering. But he challenges us in Philippians 3 to uh, compare our spiritual resume with his. Our spiritual, uh, we would call it in Uganda, a CV. Our, Our CV with his. He says, I'll paraphrase here. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Hmm? That's the way it was supposed to be. You may be circumcised. Were you done it on the eighth day? The way the Bible requires? Of the people of Israel. Don't see many Jewish looking people here. And of the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, by the way, that was the tribe that the first king came from. And his name was Saul. My name's Saul. Saul, Saul. Get it? He said, concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, faultless. You did everything that everyone, even the most rigid Pharisee, expected of him. In fact, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Concerning zeal, Persecuting the church. But then he tells you when he found Christ what he thought about that spiritual resume. He says this, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 3.9, continuing that same passage, he says, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. Let's illustrate it this way. If I let this little bookmark, it looks so sweet, it says, God bless you. And maybe if we let this represent Saul or James or John or Bruce or any of the rest of us. We, we might, you might have the prettiest bookmark in the world. You know, you might think, wow, God has to accept that one. God, God will really accept that. Mine, mine doesn't look plain like other people's. My, mine looks great. But realize that this represents our whole record. And when God looks at us, all of these things that we think are, are our righteousnesses are, are an abomination in His sight. That's what Paul came to realize. So he said, I want to be found in Him. Let the Bible not represent Christ, okay? I want to be found in Him. Not having that righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is by faith. In Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is through faith. And now Paul realizes that as God looks at him, he no longer looks at his record. However flawed that record is, but he sees Christ. And Christian, when God looks at you, he no longer sees your record. But he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we were singing. Uh, the, 
the words went something like this. When he will come with, with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone. And faultless stand before the throne. Some of you need to do a little credential checking today. You need to realize that what well, we mentioned that Isaiah said that all your most righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. No matter the good deeds that you've done, you stand spiritually naked and absolutely credentialless as far as being able to earn God's favor or His blessing. But if by faith you will come to Christ and receive the remarkable gift of His righteousness, He, he will give you His perfect credentials. He'll give you as it were, a blood-stained certificate that says, paid in full. And He will outfit you with, with the perfect white robe of His righteousness. So that when the time comes for you to enter heaven's gate, you can know for sure that you have the credential that's needed. Don't dare. To present anything less, anything else, anything other than the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's the only thing that will get you through. It's the only credential that God honors.